With the news media reporting increasingly more data breaches and cybersecurity events, and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. We're here to help you prevent potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 103rd episode of my show. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. Also, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website, and then you will be notified just as soon as each new show is available. Thank you to all my listeners everywhere in the world. I sincerely appreciate you in all of the 70-plus countries where you are located. And thank you for sending all your messages. I love getting them. Please keep them uh, coming. And I sincerely hope that you are all doing well. My September Privacy Professor Tips message was published on August 31st. Sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com or privacysecuritybrainiacs.com and submitting your email in the box on your screen. They're free as they've always been since 2005. So here in the United States, the ads and rhetoric and misinformation uh, about voting fraud seems like it's getting more pervasive as we approach the November general election for our local, state, and federal political positions. And we've been getting many questions about voting and elections security and requests to do another episode in our uh, our ongoing series of many episodes we've already done about elections and voting security. And let's see, looking at the calendar here, you know, we've not done an episode on voting and election security since early 2021. So we are long overdue, aren't we? Many claims have been and still are being made about elections and voting security. And more than ever, particularly since the 2020 election with Many of the losing presidential political party leaders claiming that there was widespread voting fraud. Now, of course, there is no process or technology of any kind for any purpose that is 100% secure. However, the 2020 general elections were found to be verifiably in in so many ways quite secure you know they were determined by hundreds of audits and and risk assessments that occurred after and before the elections in fact 
many of my listeners out there probably know that they or heard Chris Krebs, who is the head of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, as you'll most commonly hear it, say that November 3rd, 2020 election was the most secure in American history. And, you know, it, it would be expected that it would have been given the great amount of time, effort, and money that was invested in the years leading up to the 2020 elections to ensure security. But it, it is just so disappointing to see some government leaders who should be serving as role models continuing to perpetrate what's being called the election fraud lie. And there's even celebrities who have no background or knowledge of the highly diverse technologies and processes used in elections. And, you know, elections in the U.S. vary greatly from one state and territory to the next. And the various specific claims have been debunked time and time again. But yet, you know, these validated uh, lies have Continued, And when you look at the facts and consider the widespread coordination that truly would be necessary to support some of these claims of fraud, it's just clear that most of the claims are not even realistically possible as they're, they're being described. Voting machine standards and procedures vary from state to state. Some states adopt federal standards for voting security in their voting machines and procedures. Some develop their own standards and others use a hybrid of both approaches. You know, when you think about it, and as we've talked about in the other episodes in this series, it would be nearly impossible to commit the type of widespread fraud with the diversity of voting machines and procedures that are used throughout all the states. So today, we will address some of the many questions about voting and election security in this issue. And I'm so happy to welcome to my show today, Marcy Andino, Senior Director of the Elections Infrastructure Information Sharing and Analysis Center, or EI-ISAC for short, at the Center for Internet Security, or CIS for short. Marcy Andino has also served as South Carolina's Chief Election Official and Executive Director of the State Election Commission since 2003. And in that role, Marcy oversaw all elections operations in the state. And she implemented statewide modernized voter registration and election management system and online voter registration. Marcy, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here, Rebecca. Well, I'm so happy um, to speak with you about this because, and, and I'm sure you you see and hear all of these ongoing claims being made, but I'm wondering what are some of the frequently made conspiracy theories about voting fraud that you hear that you really want to set the record straight about? That's a really good question, and there are certainly lots of conspiracy theories out there. 
Um, we don't really want to be part of adding to that spread of inaccurate information. Um, you know, it's hard to keep up with the number of conspiracies that are out there. But at the EII, our focus is working with state and local election officials to improve the cybersecurity of election offices. So in what ways are you working with them? I guess maybe let's start with the, the diversity of the types of systems that you're using. I mean, that is, I think, an, a very important factor, but I don't really hear that talked about, you know, when people are discussing this on various news programs, but certainly doesn't that um, come into play when it is considered, you know, whether or not systems and procedures are secure and how um, any type of fraud can even occur, you know. Can you provide any insight into the diversity of those systems and the ways in which security controls are being implemented? Sure, and, and you're correct. There is a, a wide variety of different systems that are being used, and even from state to state, it, it's going to vary. Elections are conducted at the county level, and security is not new to election officials. Um, the talk about security, and certainly cybersecurity, um, is increasing, but every their own set of procedures and policies that they follow, and it includes physical security as well as cybersecurity, and there are lots of imbalances in place um, to protect the integrity of the voting system and the election process as a whole. You know, we work with uh, state and local election officials to um, not only reduce the spread of inaccurate information on, on social media, but we provide training in the areas of cybersecurity, and we provide professional services and products to help uh, increase the cyber maturity of their offices. I love that you brought up about the training, because I think a lot of times the misinformation involves uh, claims about people either, you know, purposefully not doing uh, what they're supposed to be doing at the polling locations or, you know, doing things that um, because there's there's no oversight or uh, people aren't, you know, carefully watching what they're doing. So when you when you talk about training, that applies to as well as, you know, just the general public. Doesn't that apply also to those poll workers who get training for how to make sure that the elections are secure in their locations where they're working? Um, that's right. Everybody is, um, you know, cybersecurity is everybody's responsibility. It really starts at the top. Um, social media provides a platform for uh, myths and disinformation to be easily spread. We tell local election officials and state election officials that they need to own their environment and reduce the spread of inaccurate information. And sometimes this inaccurate information stems from somebody just not understanding the election process. 
So I would encourage listeners, if they have questions about how uh, the voting system or the election process in general works in their jurisdiction, that they go to the source. And the trusted source for information about elections is your state or your local election officials. They can answer the questions. Um, they may even try to get somebody to sign up to be a poll worker. And that gives you an opportunity to learn more about the process and have a better understanding of how elections work. Absolutely. And speaking of, you know, the social media and communicating directly for South Carolina, what are your social media handles? Like, do you have a Twitter account? Uh, do you have LinkedIn? Where, where are you communicating with the public through? Um, well, I'm not with South Carolina any, any longer. I have been with the EII SAC since last October. Um, okay. The website for South Carolina is scvotes.gov, and it contains a wealth of information where people can go um, to find information about South Carolina's elections. But I'm with the EII SAC. Okay. Thank you for that correction. I appreciate that very much. Um, so, you know, a lot of times, you know, you're saying, well, go directly to the source. One of the problems, I think, with all this misinformation that we've seen increasingly over uh, the years is that people are like, well, they aren't, you know, they're partisan. They aren't going to tell you the truth They're, they're because they're partisan. But I think it's important if you can maybe... Um, put people, our listeners' minds at ease to maybe explain how, you know, our elections officials, they aren't, how they are or are not uh, representing any political parties. So across the United States, um, we have a, a large number of election professionals running elections, and I say professionals on purpose. Um, there are many career um, employees that are conducting elections, and they're not affiliated with either political party. Now, this varies from state to state. In some states, election officials are elected officials. Others, they are um, hired because of the skill set that they have and the experience that they have in conducting elections. But regardless of how they get there, when they're conducting elections, they should be doing it in a nonpartisan way. And if you have any concerns, then, you know, again, I would encourage listeners to reach out to the trusted sources that are the election officials and go in and, you know, participate. Elections are a public process. Uh, they try to, election professionals try to be transparent, and they invite people to come in and observe the processes. And that could be the logic and accuracy testing of the voting system that takes place before the election, or it may be the vote tabulation. You know, in some jurisdictions, you're able to go and witness this. But, um, again, contact your local, your state or local election official and find out what their opportunities are and, uh, you know, as a poll worker, and then you'll get that inside look into how elections are uh, conducted, 
listeners will gain additional knowledge and become more astute at how the process works. Now, I really love that um, that recommendation. Related to that, though, there were several instances in the 2020 elections where people showed up and they were seeing things that maybe they didn't understand because they didn't have training in how the elections worked or, um, you know, they didn't know that there's different types of machine voting machines being used and so on. So what they saw was not actually what was going on, like with um, ballot curing. Uh, there were several instances where people saw you know, through glass windows, the the workers doing ballot curing, but then they were reporting that they were just creating and answering ballots on their own or changing ballot votes. So I guess, how would you respond to those who make claims that the poll workers aren't actually using the the ballots that were submitted, but that they were replacing them with ballots that they uh, were filling out themselves. Well, again, Rebecca, the process varies from state to state, um, but a lot of times um, a team of people, and it's usually three or four people, may have to duplicate a ballot if it will not go through the scanners to be read. And, you know, that process that if you're going to be observing an election and observing this process, then you need to find out how it works in the jurisdiction where you will be. Like we talked about, a lot of the spread of inaccurate information is just the lack of understanding and how the process works. So, again, I would invite listeners, if they have questions, to go to those trusted sources so they can get accurate information. And do this before election day when they're busiest, or certainly election night when they're trying to tabulate all of the votes. But sometimes ballots are are damaged and they just won't read. And, you know, in order for everybody's ballot to be counted, sometimes it's um, it's necessary for that ballot to be duplicated. And this and takes with- place in, in various ways in different jurisdictions. Yes. And when you talk about that, I think a lot of people might think, well, how how do we know that those ballots weren't um, counted twice? There's isn't there typically some sort of documentation that is made for those types of instances when ballot curing occurs and, and they have to be duplicated to go through the the ballot readers? Certainly, they're going to maintain the original ballot as well as the duplicated ballot. Um, you know, every jurisdiction is going to have a well-laid-out plan, so there are checks and balances in place so that they're not counting ballots twice. And, you know, the election officials in each jurisdiction would be the trusted source to go to to find out exactly, you know, how that process works. Okay. And with regard to also some of the the claims that uh, are still being made about how people just 
made up their own ballots, uh, you know, photocopied them and then just filled them out and brought hundreds or thousands to a polling location or dropped them off at a, at a ballot box. Uh, isn't, you know, there, there are controls and ways to, to identify those type of non-official ballots, aren't they? I mean, aren't most ballots made on special paper or some other type of, of indicator of what is a official ballot versus what isn't? Certainly, and, you know, that's going to vary from voting system to voting system, but um, most uh, ballots are, are read by scanners. It's an optical scan system. Uh, there are timing marks, and uh, the paper is a little different. So, um, you know, again, you're going to have to check with the individual uh, locations, election officials, to find out exactly what controls they have in place. But there's a lot of reconciliation going on during this process to make sure that in a polling place, if you've had 100 people vote, you only have 100 ballots. And in many jurisdictions, the voter is actually scanning their ballot. They're not just being dumped randomly into a ballot box and scanned later. This is taking place right there at the polling place by election officials. But, you know, at the, at the EII SAC, our focus is working with state and local election officials to improve the cybersecurity of election offices. So, yeah, so let's get into then some of the uh, claims with regard to the cybersecurity because that that kind of brings in the integrity of the systems, right? The integrity of accuracy and catching, you know, when maybe when voters uh, might try to um, vote more than once. I mean, can you describe maybe some, and we will be coming up on a break here before too long, but we can get started now, I think, with talking about some of the things you're doing to help organizations with the cybersecurity of their, their voting systems. So voting systems are not connected to the internet, and, and that is probably one of the biggest myths. Um, so cybersecurity doesn't really come into play with the individual voting machines that you might see at a polling place. We offer products and professional services to help uh, elections increase their cyber maturity level and protect their network infrastructure. And that really is something that is behind the scenes, right? Because so many fraud um, claims are are based on, you know, visual misunderstanding of what's going on, or maybe, you know, videos. I've seen videos that are clearly uh, not even at the the polling place, but they claim they are. So, what are some of the major cybersecurity controls that you help organizations uh, who are are supporting elections to put into place? So one thing we do is we train and we communicate, and uh, we want to make sure that election staff are ready um, for what types of cyber threats they may be presented with. And 
this isn't just your full-time employees, but in the elections field, um, a lot of temporary workers are brought in to meet the demands, particularly of a general election. And these are seasonal employees, and this would include your poll workers. And, you know, we, we tell election officials, make sure that all of your employees, even seasonal workers, are ready to meet the demands, aware of the risk. And, you know, phishing is the number one way that cyber attacks occur. So make sure you remind your employees, make sure you do phishing um, training. Uh, and if you receive any type of a malicious or what you think could possibly be a malicious email, perhaps it has a link in it or it has a document attached or some type of file attached, we provide a service where you can analyze that suspicious email, uh, including the links and the attachments, so an election official would not open that type of an email in an unprotected environment. And many times election officials, particularly at the county and the local level, they're receiving emails from voters that may have attachments, and they may not recognize uh, that this is from a voter, so they have to open those attachments, but to do it in a uh, very secure manner, and we provide that as a no-cost service. All of the services that uh, we provide at the EII SAC are available at no cost to election officials. Oh, we also do great. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. I just uh, I think that's wonderful. Well, thank you. And we also encourage election officials to participate in tabletop exercises to help just raise that awareness, um, kind of think outside of the box so that they can meet and defeat cyber attacks. Oh, yes. I love tabletop exercises. Um, you know, I think that is so important because you can't uh, actually react the first time something happens in the most efficient or um, effective way, right? But if you've practiced it a few times then it will help you to get down that uh, method of, you know, reacting efficiently and effectively much better. So do you actually provide, uh, like, the elections um, officials with, like, on-site training then, since you're talking about tabletop, or is it still pretty much remote? Um, it can be either. We work with our partner, CISA, that you mentioned earlier, um, to conduct election-specific tabletop exercises. Um, sometimes they're virtual. Um, they can be done online, or they can be done in person as well. And, you know, we encourage uh, election officials to participate. It's a great reminder of, um, you know, circumstances or incidents they may face. And we also encourage them to have a good incident response plan and to review that plan prior to every election and make sure that if an event happens, they are prepared uh, with to follow that incident response plan um, so that they can quickly uh, mitigate anything that might happen. Excellent. Well, it's time right now for our break uh, to hear from our sponsors. But when we come back, Marcy, I want to continue on talking about uh, these types of specific issues that's involved with this. So today I'm speaking with Marcy Andino 
Um, she is the Senior Director of Elections Infrastructure Information Sharing and Analysis Center, the EIISAC, at the Center for Internet Security, or CIS, and she's providing us with facts about voting and elections security. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as provide topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com and through privacysecuritybrainiacs.com. Please stay with us. We will be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, research, report writing, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyguidance.com. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages she has published since 2007. Visit privacyguidance.com for help and answers to your questions. The Privacy Security Brainiacs team wants everyone responsible for security, privacy, and compliance to stay up to date with the latest news, risks, and security and privacy practices. Check out their growing library of topics not offered by others. Privacy Security Brainiacs also wants every business to perform automated risk assessments, which are free or value-priced for all types of security and privacy topics. You need to find out more about Privacy Security Brainiacs. Visit PrivacySecurityBrainiacs.com. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. I'm speaking today with Marcy Andino. She is the Senior Director of the Elections Infrastructure Information Sharing and Analysis Center, or EI-ISAC, at the Center for Internet Security, or CIS. And she's discussing... Uh, some facts about voting and election security. And before the break, we were actually getting into the cybersecurity issues. Um, so, Marcy, you know, you talked about phishing as being one of the, if not the most common tactic that is um, being attempted in order to exploit vulnerabilities, and, and that would be human vulnerabilities to basically get to the technical networks, right? So when you're, when you're talking about phishing, how do you see or do you see spear phishing um, against like elections officials and poll workers? Do you see those types of phishing messages differ? Are there different tactics that are being taken for those who are trying to exploit uh elections and voting workers as opposed to the general public? 
So, Rebecca, most cyber attacks do start with a, a phishing email, so it's a, it's a great topic um, to talk about. And I think what we're seeing in the election environment is very similar to what we're seeing in other uh, environments. And at one time, we would train and tell people to poor grammar or words misspelled. And, you know, that might be a sign that uh, it was a phishing email, but that's no longer the case. Uh, phishing emails have become much more sophisticated, and a trend that we're seeing this year is they're trying to attempt to make you feel like they know you. Um, for instance, they might say, your invoice is attached, or the documents you attached all with the intention of making that recipient of the phishing email feel like, oh, this is supposed to be something I asked for or I'm expecting, and just to trick them into opening that malicious document that could be attached. So um, they've become much more sophisticated. They're using uh, logos from different businesses, to, and, and they're, they're really well done. So it's important to have secure email system in place where these documents and links are all scanned prior to them arriving in the employee's email box. And if that's not in place, then that is a service that we offer through our MCAP or our malicious code analysis platform. And the election official can upload the suspicious email and we will analyze the links and attachments and let them know whether or not it's so that's one service that we provide at no charge to election officials at the EII SAC. So, and, and that all is great. That makes a lot of sense. I would think, though, that, you know, I see new um, attacks every day, right? So are we calling them zero-day attacks? They haven't been seen before. Um, the tactics haven't been used before. So those are, you know, really threatening in that oftentimes the recipients or uh, the targets of the attacks then are not ready for them. So when it comes to elections, like when you talked about the invoice, with regard to the voting worker, the, the elections workers and those who are supporting the systems, have you seen any that are specific to the elections? Like any any types of emails that might say, oh, well, we need we have an emergency here at at the state. Um, we need to have you send your uh, list of voters to us right away, uh, or something like that. That's trying to get to information that really should not be shared, you know, outside of the elections um, personnel who have been vetted and trusted. So one of the things that to election officials about is staying connected. Um, the election community as a whole is better when we work together, and that's part of what we do at the EIISAC. Information sharing is, is part of our name. So, yes, we are seeing um, election officials being targeted um, by phishing campaigns. Some are just more generic, but others are directly targeted at the election community. So that's why we ask election officials to report this type of activity to us 
And then if we see a pattern, we're able to share it with the greater election community. So everybody staying connected benefits from what might be happening in one state or another. It's really a way for us to raise the awareness of election officials so that they're better prepared um, to meet and defeat all types of cyber attacks. And Yes, yes. I love that information sharing because, you know, it, it helps everyone involved. Now, how many states do you currently have participating, if that's information that, you know, you can provide? Sure. All 50 states are um, oh. members of the EII tax. Oh, great. And the territories as well? Territories as well. Oh, that's excellent. So then do you have like um, ongoing communications with the members or meetings, you know, regular meetings or anything like that? We do. We um, communicate in a uh, variety of ways. Um, one thing is we have an election security spotlight and that's Spotlight is written with the non-technical election official in mind. We pick a different topic every month, and it's really designed to raise awareness of what's going on in the cybersecurity space. We also hold quarterly calls with election officials, and we will cover a wide variety of topics um, and just to raise their awareness and share information. If there is some type of a cyber threat, uh, happening, we send out alerts on a regular basis to the technical election officials, and every jurisdiction has somebody uh, designated as both the executive and as a technical lead. So we are constantly providing information. And we just recently held our annual ISAC meeting where we invited all of our members to come in and learn more about cybersecurity. And we had a variety of topics that we talked about. Um, some were election-related, and then um, at the annual meeting were relevant to other sectors that um, are members of either the EII-SAC or the multi-state ISAC, both of which are housed at the Center for Internet Security. You know, it, it's so great to hear that because, you know, with each state establishing and following their own state rules and regulations and using their own types of equipment. I think a lot of times uh, those of us who focus, you know, only on cybersecurity or privacy controls, we sometimes think, oh, well, you know, how what's being done in one place might be just such a great um, example of great security, but then this other state might be doing things and they don't even realize this great security practice is available. So it sounds like you're saying with all these states communicating, they can help share that information. I think, though, too, the fact that there are so many different voting uh, systems and solutions out there. Do you have any idea, and I, you know, I'm asking you this off, uh, just on the spur of the moment, but do you know how many different like voting systems are still being used throughout the states and territories or a ballpark? Um, yeah, there, there are not a lot of different systems. Um, there is a list of systems on the, on the U.S. Election Assistance Commission's website. 
Um, they're a federal agency, and they serve as the election clearinghouse. Um, but there's, a, there's only a limited number of vendors that provide voting systems. Uh, there's, you know, it, it's not something that you can sell to every business. It's a very unique niche market, um, so there's not a lot of involvement. But there are a number of systems, and they do go, um, you know, the federal cert. Most of them go through the federal certification. I think most states require that. And what you're what you're hitting on is again, every jurisdiction is different. And one of the things that we recommend that every election office do is determine, um, you know, how cyber prepared they are. And uh, you know, we think. That an assessment, an honest assessment to, to, to determine where they stand, what, what's their maturity level. And then once they have this assessment, then they can develop a plan to improve their cybersecurity posture. And so that's another thing that at the EIISAC we provide, and that's the National Cybersecurity Review. And again, it's available to election officials at no cost. You know, I'm glad you brought up about those assessments because that's something one of my areas I've been doing my entire adult career over 30 years was audits and risk assessments. And it, it, it really bothers me when I hear these claims, you know, on various news channels saying how, oh, well, those weren't objective. The people that do that aren't being objective or they've rigged, like you said, you pointed out that there's only a few types of voting systems that are being used. You know, there's probably different versions of the systems, you know, being used throughout, but th there's only a few companies. So I guess what would you tell our listeners who are still skeptical and they're saying, well, you know, these auditors and risk assessors you know, how, we don't trust them. So we want to go in, we've seen, and we saw a lot of this. We're still seeing this where people are going in and trying to take the voting um, machinery and, you know, take possession of it. I mean, can you maybe explain how allowing non-qualified or maybe those who don't understand technology, what a risk that is to the election system? when somebody who has no background or training for those machines try to, you know, commandeer them into their own possession, the, the risks that creates? Um, I really think, you know, it goes back to um, election officials need to reduce the spread of inaccurate information. And like we were talking earlier, a lot of times that inaccurate information, it might not be intentional. It may be they just simply don't understand the process. So, you know, find out what the rules are in the jurisdiction or the jurisdiction that you're concerned about. And when you find out how that process works, then you'll better understand the election process or system as a whole. You know, with respect to the voting equipment, I don't think election officials can just hand it over to anyone. You know, we're not giving away the keys to our front door to let anyone come into our homes. And in order to protect the election's integrity, they have to have tight controls and they have to secure that equipment. 
and make sure that they know, you know, who has access. And that's just part of good cybersecurity or physical security. Um, we have an entire um, guide. It's called the Essential Guide to Election Security, and it's a great resource for um, election officials, and it's really written to meet them where they are. But election officials have varying levels of cyber maturity, and we want to be able to communicate with everyone, whether they're non-technical or they're very technical. And going back to the um, self-assessment, it is a self-assessment and it's anonymous. So we're not going to go out and say, oh, County X scored this or County Y. This is a, a tool to use to build on. And it, it's anonymous. We're not sharing the specific results from any jurisdiction. But the first step in knowing what you need to do to harden your defenses is to really know where you are currently. So using the um, National Cybersecurity Review in conjunction with our Essential Guide to Election Security, any jurisdiction can defenses and become more cyber mature. And, and this is something that really starts at the top. I believe that any jurisdiction must establish a culture of cybersecurity. It's not something you do today and forget about it. It's an ongoing process, and it's very important in the election space. So those are some of the no-cost services that we provide at the EIISAC so that all elections are more secure. What type voting system you have in place, it's really about protecting the system as a whole, and critical in election infrastructure. And that's great to hear. Um, you know, we did see, though, in different locations, in different polling places, that there were some folks who were not uh, knowledgeable. I, they weren't experts, I should say, in voting or elections, but they were trying to force themselves into where the election workers were at. So as part of this training that you provide and maybe even your tabletop exercises or case studies, do you help in this, um, in this atmosphere we have of growing, you know, more physical threats that uh, impact the cybersecurity, right? So um, do you provide some training and advice and materials to help the different locations within each state to know how to, you know, ha deal with those types of threats? And maybe even are you now recommending a position to be the point person to deal with physical threats that might um, exist or rise up within different polling locations? Physical threats are certainly something that election officials have had to deal with in the, in the last few years, more so than in, in prior years. And we um, we talk with counties and states, and we, you know, suggest that they train all of their workers, including poll workers, on how to deal with these situations. And um, if they deal with sometimes the inaccurate information, the mal or the mis and dis and malinformation that's out there, 
sometimes things don't get escalated to that point where um, there there is the, the risk of physical um, harm. We, we tell election officials if they feel like they're in imminent danger, call 911. That's their first call. Um, but, you know, we, we do work with them to raise awareness and make sure that they have a plan in place and that that plan is communicated down to the poll worker level so that everybody's prepared to deal with any situation that might arise on election day. That's that's great to hear. That uh, support is so valuable. I think, too, what you said at the beginning of the show, too, about how there are no connections between the voting systems, the the actual technology that's involved with the votes and the internet is still is a really important point because a lot of the the misinformation had to do with you know people coming in from uh from different groups going through the internet into the system to change the votes or from other countries to change the votes and i guess it would be great to hear you know hear you describe at a very high level how that's just not possible if they're not connected to the internet? Well, there are lots of checks and balances along the way. And and while um, different jurisdictions conduct elections in different manners and they use different um, types of equipment, um, the voting system is not connected to the internet. So, you know, if you have an election day model, uh, there are checks in places at the polling places to make sure that the number of voters that came through the line are the number of ballots that were cast. And, you know, then the polling place reports to the county and the county reports to the state. And there are checks and balances all along the way to make sure that all of those um, numbers match up and what was actually reported at the precinct is consistent and it hasn't been changed. So part of what you do to make sure that that process is properly is protect your networks. And, you know, we have provided Albert sensors to monitor um, the traffic on a network and we've provided malicious domain software to stop ransomware and endpoint detection and reporting software that can stop malicious activity um, quickly. And so having all of those types of security approach in place helps to uh, to protect against cyber attacks. Um, Simple things like using multi-factor authentication, that's something that election officials should certainly be doing, but all of your listeners as well. And we encourage election officials to make sure they have a recent vulnerability scan of all of their external face sets. So if there are any um, vulnerabilities, to go ahead and install all possible patches and updates as soon as possible. So this is just a continuing commitment to good cyber hygiene and making sure that they're taking all reasonable measures to make sure that their system is safe. So then they can, with confidence, say, yes, these are the correct uh, results to the election. There is no tampering. 
Well, and that's excellent. And I'm so glad uh, that you're pointing that out in the fact that you are working with all 50 states and all the territories. Believe it or not, we're already at the end of our show here. It's gone by so quickly. But maybe in a, maybe a minute's time frame, what would be the key point you want to leave with our listeners today? Well, thank you, Rebecca. Um, ISAC was created to increase the cyber maturity of election officials. And as the threats change, we offer different tools at no charge to election officials so that they can be prepared to meet and, and defeat cyber attacks. And I know I've said this before, but if your listeners have concerns or have questions about how elections are conducted, where they live, they should contact the first that's their state and local election officials. And then just make sure that election officials should make sure they're just following the basic steps so that they can ensure that they are cyber strong. Thank you so much for being my guest today, Marcy. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. So today I've been speaking with Marcy Andino. She is the Senior Director of the Elections Infrastructure Information Sharing and Analysis Center, or the EI-ISAC at the Center for Internet Security, CIS, about voting and election security. Send feedback about this show. Do you want to hear more about this topic? Let me know using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. If you cannot make our scheduled debut show each month, you can always listen to all the recordings of all the past shows You can also visit my YouTube channel, The Privacy Professor. Until our next show, ask those you do business with. Ask those in the places that you're voting and your poll locations. Are they doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them, the information that's going through them? Call them up and speak with them. Um, Be privacy aware and cybersecurity aware in the month ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live the first Saturday of each month at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next time, stay safe.